welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner of ACG Analytics, and welcome to a particularly important weekly banker call. I think we all peaked at the peaceful change in power in Washington. With that comes uh, not only in the executive branch, but also uh, in the legislative branch, with Democrats now narrowly controlling the House and, and a 50-50 split in the Senate with control going to the Democrats because of the vice president's vote. So we're off into a new direction that really has global implications. Joining me today for this analysis is Chris Serwinski, our lead international analyst, John East, our head of research, Bart Oosterveld, as well as Brian Dean, our lead uh, analyst on LATAM. I'd now like to turn it over to Chris Serwinski to take us through, and the team, to take us through analysis. Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining us on such a busy week here. You know, the city is coming down normal. It was, as David said, nice to see a peaceful transition of power yesterday and a show of unity for the country, I think, will go a long way to restoring some of the norms that we previously enjoyed here. John East, I want to discuss Biden's first actions as president. He forecast the list of executive orders that he would take. He did not fail there. He pushed around 15 or so actions in the first couple hours of his presidency. Which among those were notable to you? Well, I don't think there was anything terribly surprising from an administrative procedure standpoint. His directive to have agencies consider environmental regulations as well as to re-examine how cost-benefit is calculated in regards to the regulatory process is the most interesting to me. A lot of them were messaging. He rejoined the World Health Organization. He stopped construction on the border wall with Mexico, which basically doesn't exist as is. He rescinded the Muslim ban. I mean, most of this has been talked about for some time. He established a federal commission on racial equity to ensure that there is no discrimination in the federal hiring process. I wouldn't say there were many surprises, but directing the agencies to reconsider cost-benefit calculations, which we've been saying for some months would happen, does have an impact on scope of the regulations that the new administration can promulgate. I'd say one that stood out to me was the Keystone XL pipeline, revoking the permits, something that President Obama did during his era and President Trump reversed immediately upon taking office. I don't I don't want to read too much into it, but it, it is interesting to me and I think it shows that, you know, he does intend to stick towards this environmentally cautious with a green priority. I think that it shows that that's where the influence in the administration is because, for example, the Keystone XL plan with TC Energy in Canada, they had just announced they were going to move the pipeline to net zero emissions and they were going to use all union labor. They gave tribal groups a large equity stake in the project. And there were several labor unions that were pushing the Biden administration to reconsider, and they still went forward with it. So labor unions are an integral part of, or at least formerly were, of Joe Biden's electorate. And so it's interesting to me that it does show the the influence of the environmentalists. One thing that hasn't really changed, John, is pandemic relief. That $1.9 trillion plan that he released, we've talked about on previous calls. We've written research notes about it. Ultimately, that's a little bit high of a price tag for Republicans. And we've already seen some 
pushback over the last couple of days. For example, Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski saying they're not sure they can support such a package at this moment. How, how does this all come to the center and how do you get those Republicans who are a little bit wary of more spending to support that plan? Well, so I'm just going to say one thing on the Keystone. Ironically, in a way, it's President Trump's fault that President Biden was able to do that so quickly because if the approval had gone through the normal rulemaking process and the administration had spent a lot of time on that, it would have had to have been undone through the rulemaking process as opposed to a unilateral action by the president. In terms of the pandemic relief bill, if you're losing Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski on the Republican side, you know your bill's in trouble because those are the canaries in the coal mine. Those are the Republicans that would be most likely in general to go to the center and to give the new president a win and who are generally more moderate. Now, there are some other senators who might make up for that. Rubio of Florida, Senator Hawley of Missouri. It's going to have to be negotiated. It probably won't be an eight-month negotiation like we had with the bill passed in December, but it's going to take some time. Now, outside of that, talking about, you know, regular order in the Senate and in the House, we've got a new Congress. Everyone was sworn in yesterday. How long does it take the committee chairman to start dictating, you know, their plans? We're going to start holding hearings. We know what legislation they're trying to push. You know, when do we get back to, to regular D.C.? It probably takes a week or two. Um, an incoming president always changes a lot. People have to evaluate how they want to react. Now, what the committees are doing are focusing on getting people confirmed to key positions. There's some other key posts that Congress wants to confirm as quickly as possible, especially those having to do with national security, the Department of State. But soon, what will end up happening is there will be organizational meetings for the committees, and it's customary for the committee chairman to lay out his or her vision for the committee's work for this Congress. Now, moving out of D.C., Bart put out the weekly heat map on Monday. This week's focus was El Salvador. Bart, why don't you first start with an update on the global caseload numbers? Yeah, thank you, Chris. So the global case growth is holding steady. It's at 12% this week. Where it's growing is Europe, which is well-documented in the financial press. The UK is a particularly outlier in, in the negative sense, but all other major economies, so Italy, Germany, France, Spain, also still experiencing double-digit growth. The U.S. growth is slightly down. It's at 16%. What is kind of worrying from a global perspective is that parts of the world that weren't previously super affected by the pandemic, and I'm talking mainly about sub-Saharan Africa, Africa are now seeing consistently high growth rates. So the, the hotspot seems to continue to move, and that's something to, to keep an eye on. Where it's particularly high also is in Eastern Europe that deserves mention. It was a region that previously was not heavily affected, but now you see countries like Montenegro, Croatia, Serbia having pandemic impact comparable to, to the U.S. So that's where the global picture stands. In terms of El Salvador, what's interesting about El Salvador is that it has a characteristic that other countries have that, you know, they appear in the red in our heat map, but they still seem to be doing quite well in terms of their finances. So El Salvador approached the IMF, you know, and got a got a relief package mid-April, uh, well before everybody else. And so they did a variety of other measures, including a full lockdown early on and made a lot of direct payments compared to other baskets of policies from, from comparable countries, a lot of direct payments, families and, and households, and then had complementary measures, including food distribution, tax deferrals, reduction on tariffs, 
for for critical goods and the central bank did the the usual regulatory easing for bank requirements and and the like so they are in terms of caseloads below the global average you know about 60% of the global average and so the impact on their healthcare infrastructure is you know, they're about in the middle of the data set of 75 countries that we publish every week. And they've had their case growth at or below 10% for almost half a year now, which is fairly unique in the data set. But in terms of getting out of the pandemic and getting out of the pandemic financially whole without defaulting on market debt, they seem to be in a relatively good position. Brian, I know you follow El Salvador closely as well. I don't know if there's problems you want to add. Thanks, Bart. I would just add that the most important dynamic right now in terms of uh, El Salvador is the uh, upcoming uh, legislative elections toward the end of February. President Nayib Bukele, whose instincts are very much aligned with the market, he's very eager to pursue investment opportunities and identify U.S. firms seeking to nearshore from Asia, specifically China, and relocate closer to the United States. The problem has been an absolute blockade in the Congress against his initiatives right down to his budget proposal. The two parties that have dominated politics down there since the peace accords in 1992 have uh, aligned to block everything he's doing. Bukele's approval ratings are outrageously high. Sid Gallup has him close to 90%. His party, his fledgling political party that's built around him, is expected to overwhelm and February elections and take majorities in the National Assembly. This will expand Bukele's power exponentially and reduce some of the political press he's getting right now. So I would say that Bukele, who's a strong U.S. ally, is, is strengthening his position going into 2021. Thanks, Brian. Well, I've got you here. We're, we're discussing Central America, and let's. why don't we just keep going down and touch on Brazil first. So a very important race going on in Brazil right now for who's going to be in charge of the Chamber of Deputies. There are largely two candidates under consideration. One, part of the centrist coalition of lawmakers in the Congress, and then there's President Bolsonaro's favorite candidate, Arthur Lira. What, who's winning in that race right now, and what are our expectations? extremely close right now, and I would say that right now, Bolsonaro's preferred candidate to become the next speaker, Arturo Lida, is slightly ahead in the race. I would say, though, let me just put the Brazil uh, congressional leadership election into, into perspective. We have presidential elections coming up in Brazil in 2022. This leadership vote will probably influence more than any other factor that uh, the political alignment going into 2022. Bolsonaro's candidate is uh, rhetorically more committed to supporting Bolsonaro and Gedi's economic reform agenda, uh, whereas the preferred candidate of the outgoing speaker, Rodrigo Maia, a gentleman by the name of Balea Fossi, their strategy for overcoming uh, Bolsonaro Bolsonaro's candidate in the leadership election is to procure the support from the left, the PT and the smaller left-wing parties. This is obviously requiring them to distance themselves from some of the economic reforms, Gedi's fiscal agenda. So the interesting thing is these are all centrist. There's no strength in the left in Brazil right now. So you're talking about the, the criteria is either pro-Bolsonaro or anti-Bolsonaro. The anti-Bolsonaro group, if they win, will likely align themselves with the centrist governor of Sao Paulo, who has presidential ambitions and, and become very political in their efforts to undermine the, the Bolsonaro administration during the remainder of its tenure. 
Uh, Lero is, is the preferred candidate for Bolsonaro and by far the preferred candidate for a continuation of the economic reforms. But I would add that there is a softening even on the Bolsonaro side and a more pragmatic stance on fiscal austerity. Bolsonaro recognizes that his sustained uh, relatively high popularity in Brazil is predicated upon uh, the generous handouts that he's given to poor Brazilians over the course of the coronavirus. Those have expired and there's an effort underway to, to extend them. And, you know, the politics there are self-evident. Yeah, and then just shifting over to the central bank, John Turek, meeting yesterday, left the rate unchanged, but it seems like they've left the door open for hike in the uh, in the future. Any comment? It was a very interesting COPOM meeting yesterday in the sense that, you know, Brazil had this pretty progressive forward guidance in terms of promising to remain on hold. And yesterday they dropped that forward guidance, which does open the door to rate hikes this year. There is the sense that, you know, Brazil was going to hike by the end of this year. I mean, even the CB forecast is for the Celic rate to rise from two to three and a quarter by the end of this year and to, you know, four and three quarters by the end of next. But this, in a sequencing perspective, is very important and basically laying the groundwork that, you know, you could probably get hikes as, you know, soon as May. So in the sequencing sense, it was pretty consequential. The only thing is that, and I think that the market kind of wanted to read it as hawkish, is that they did attribute a lot to the rise in inflation, inflation expectations as short-term factors that are remaining highly persistent. Now, that does bring into question if those, you know, commodity-related things do weaken, does some of this, you know, hawkishness revert back, especially with the market pricing and a lot of hikes, that's probably something worth monitoring. Thanks, John. I certainly agree. Now, Brian, to close the loop here, let's let's move over to Mexico. With the Biden administration, we've talked a lot about, you know, what that means for Mexico. How will AMLO and Biden work together? Bilateral relationship is obviously so important. The trading relationship is obviously so important. First thing that comes to mind for me is the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, the USMCA. Two issues that I'd love your comment on are related to, one, are we going to see any labor issues? This administration should be closer to labor. And we already know that there are some simmering conflicts there. And two, how will they handle the pending cross-border energy investment issues with regards to AMLO's policies, perhaps reversing some of their previous reform efforts in 2013? You know, Mexico is clearly beginning to realize that the new White House is going to uh, engage in a much more rules-based policy with respect to USMCA and other aspects of the relationship. The Trump administration largely ignored President uh, Lopez Obrador's efforts to undermine private investment in the energy sector through regulation uh, because of AMLO's uh, commitment to Trump on immigration issues. That's over. You know, I don't think the Biden administration is going to be proactive on, on going after Mexico on the labor front, where you are going to see pressure and a lot of trade-offs are between pro-labor Democrats in Congress and the Biden administration, and that could very well result in engagement on the labor dispute mechanism within the USMCA. I think the greater risk is in your second query, Chris, with respect to uh, the investment in energy issues and uh, the impact that uh, AMO's commitment to Pemex and the reestablishment of its premacy on foreign investors. You know, the state's hand in the energy sector is very large right now. AMO is, is softening his commitment on the Pemex front because he understands and has stated many, many times that the economic recovery in Mexico is predicated on the USMCA taking full effect, 
which according to the Mexicans doesn't take place until Biden's in power, which is now. So, you know, the, there's going to have to be a moment of reckoning for AMLO here because, you know, he can no longer defer a decision on whether he's going to continue to pursue this, you know, Pemex-centric policy and in particular the effort to undermine or overturn the uh, constitutional reforms that open the energy sector. You know, if AMLO decides to pursue that course, it will, you know, have a huge impact on the USMCA on the bilateral relationship with Washington, and it will, you know, divert any investment elsewhere. AMLO's preference for Pemex has been highly prejudicial against renewable fuels, and I think this will be the crux, along with the complaints from the U.S. and uh, oil industry, that they will use to uh, encourage very strongly AMLO to relent uh, on this Pemex drive. And then finally, last question here in Mexico would be that this bill that was introduced that would require the Bank of Mexico to buy up a lot of dollars uh, caused a big stir in you know the FX market. Seems that finally, and for the last time, I would imagine AMLO has said that this bill will not be happening anywhere near its current form. Is, is there any possibility after him saying that that you know we see this resurgence? No, you finally become evident to AMLO that this legislation, sponsored by a senator by the name of Monreal, is in a direct response to a, a complaint on the part of Ricardo Salinas, the owner of Banco Azteca because Banco Azteca, for a variety of reasons, does not have correspondent banking in the U.S. So this bill affected a minuscule percentage of dollars coming into Mexico. It was designed to alleviate some pain suffered by one company owned by a highly influential Mexican, and it just sunk to high heaven. So it looks like AMLO is pushing back on this, and uh, quite correctly so. If anything does move, it will be, in my view, inconsequential and done as a uh, an effort to appease Monreal and Ricardo Salinas. Thanks, Brian, and thanks for all the all the insight there in Brazil and Mexico. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.